lecture is named in honor and in memory of Stuart G. Christian Jr., affectionately known to his many friends as Punky. Punky Christian's service to his country as a decorated combat veteran of World War II and to his community as a business executive and a civic leader is well known to us all. Twice wounded in Normandy, Punky returned home and helped build post-war Virginia. His service to the VHS spanned some of the most critical years in our history. He co-chaired our first capital campaign, the Fifth Century Fund, which redefined the VHS as the Center for Virginia History and served as a catalyst for two decades of growth. As a trustee, a board president, an honorary vice chairman, he gave leadership, energy, generosity, and his own special cantankerous brand of persistence. All of these qualities left an indelible mark on this place and those of us fortunate enough to have known him. Tonight, we celebrate Punky with this lecture named in his honor. And I'm delighted that again, his wonderful wife Peggy is here along with three of their children, Susan, Wheezy, and Stuart. And I would ask them to stand and receive a round of applause. I want to thank you, as we do every year, uh, for sharing Punky with his extended family here at the VHS. And though he left us in 2009, after a long life full of accomplishment, we will always remember him with the greatest of affection for what he meant to us and to so many of his fellow Virginians. We've chosen World War II era topics for the Christian lecture in honor of Punky's service in that conflict. Now tonight I want to take a moment and honor the service of some others as well. I would ask that those of us among those among us tonight who are World War II veterans, would you please stand and receive an ovation as well? We all owe you a debt of gratitude that can never be repaid. And let me just say this, if you know a veteran of World War II who is not here tonight, please take the time to say something to them, thank them, and don't wait. Because as we know, the greatest generation is leaving us too soon at the rate of 700 plus a day. So take the time, make your thanks. It is something that we all need to do. Now, on to our story for tonight. Near the end of World War II, a plane carrying 24 members of the United States military, including nine women's Army Corps members, crashed into the New Guinea jungle. Three survivors were stranded deep in a jungle valley inhabited by cannibals. The story of their survival and the efforts undertaken to save them are the crux of Lost in Shangri-La a riveting story of deliverance under the most unlikely circumstances, our speaker's book deserves, deserves its place among the great survival stories of World War II. Mitchell Zukoff teaches journalism at Boston University. He is the author not only of the book about which he will be speaking tonight, Lost in Shangri-La, a true story of survival, adventure, and the most incredible rescue mission of World War II, but also of Ponzi's scheme, 
the true story of a financial legend, and I can't imagine why that would be timely these days, <laughs> and Choosing Naya, A Family's Journey, which received the Christopher Award and was named a Massachusetts Honor Book. Our speaker's work as a journalist has appeared in The New Yorker, Fortune, and other national and regional publications. He's a former special projects reporter for the Boston Globe, where he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for investigative reporting. He received the Distinguished Writing Award from the American Society of Newspaper Editors, the Livingston Award for International Reporting, and a multitude of other national honors. So please join me in a warm Virginia welcome for Mitchell Zukoff, who will speak to us on the topic, Lost in Shangri-La, a story of survival and rescue during World War II. Thank you very much, Paul. And I'd also like to add my thanks to the Christian family for inviting me here today. Thank you very much. Uh, this is actually from last year's Virginia Historical uh, Society garden party. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's quite an event. And uh, um, so I'm going to talk about uh, New Guinea. I'm just curious if any of the, uh, the gentlemen who, who stood, uh, if any of you uh, served in New Guinea. I'm not sure. Ah, we do. So please, at any point, correct me. Feel free. Uh, there'll be a, a mic coming around. Thank you. Uh, my agent requires me to put in that slide. Um, I just like this slide because it, if you like old movies, this story is a story that took me around the world and into the past, uh, to the island of New Guinea in 1945, to be exact. This is an actual US Army map of New Guinea in that era. Uh, and you can see that the, uh, the west half of New Guinea is sort of marked off, and this is where we're going to be talking about. And in fact, I'm going to use, if I can, the story begins here in Hollandia, at the top of the island where the arrow is pointing. This was the location of a, something called Base G. This was an enormous military base that after MacArthur and his troops took New Guinea in April of 1944, it was established there uh, first as a launching point, they thought, to the Philippines, and then perhaps if there was going to be a ground invasion of Japan. Uh, so Base G was a major base uh, there at the northern uh, central point of the coastline. And right here, and what's so interesting about this map to me is right here, it, New Guinea, as you can see, looks like a kind of a prehistoric bird-shaped <laughs> island. Um, and according to U.S. map makers, across the center is this unbroken chain of mountains right here that almost seems to form a backbone for the bird. And that's what they thought was there. Well, in 1944, in late 1944, this fellow, Colonel Ray Ellsmore, was flying across the island looking for a place perhaps to set up a landing strip uh, somewhere between the north coast and the south coast uh, for, supply region, for supply reasons or to get more easily to Australia uh, or just for emergencies. And when he looked out his window, where his map said that there would be a 13 or 14,000 foot mountain, there was instead a tabletop flat valley. And it was incredible to him because it, it wasn't supposed to be there. 
It was surrounded on all sides by mountains, and it was covered almost all the time by clouds. And that's how it had escaped outside notice for so long. It was one of the last places on Earth, truly. And even more remarkable was the fact that it was inhabited. And this is a picture that Ray Ellsmore took on one of his first flights over this valley, which acquired the name Shangri-La. I'll say why in a minute. And there, if you look at the top up here, you have a native man in a watchtower and another native man running toward the watchtower at the sound of Ray Ellsmore's plane. And soon, everyone was hearing these stories. Everyone who was based in Hollandia was, was hearing about this incredible place with these people who it, time, it's not that time didn't you know, forget them. It never knew they existed. These were truly Stone Age people, people who had not yet discovered the wheel, who had fire but did not have clothing. The women were naked but for twine wrapped around their hips. The men were naked but for gourds, hollowed out gourds covering their genitals. And stories, of course, grew up around this place. And at first, Ray Ellsmore called it Hidden Valley or Lost Valley. But then he took a few reporters up to show it to him because he sort of fancied himself the Columbus of Shangri-La. And uh, they named it Shangri-La. They thought back to the, 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 the book or the movie you may know, Lost Horizon, uh, the story of a lost valley where life was long and peaceful and uh, people lived enlightened days. And the, the, the name stuck, but it really had nothing to do with this place. But it became known as Shangri-La. And stories grew up about the inhabitants of Shangri-La. And the people in Hollandia, because no one could land there, they couldn't land a plane in the valley, it was impossible uh, to get it down and then back up, uh, they told stories about these people. And they said they were se the men were seven feet tall and they grew pigs the size of ponies, and they practiced uh, human sacrifice on stone altars, and they were cannibals, and only that last part was true. <laughs> but everybody wanted to see them. Everybody wanted, a lot of the people who were based at Hollandia were Women's Army Corps members, uh, logistical units, uh, mechanics. They were not in the midst of combat, at least at that point, and so, this was the most exciting thing possible. And so sightseeing flights, uh, kind of morale boosters. These were people working in terrible conditions, sort of brutal uh, heat, seven days a week, often 10, 12 hours a day. And as a reward, they would be taken on one of these sightseeing flights over the valley. Well, on May 13, 1945, one of these flights was organized. And it was organized by the fella in the middle there, um, uh, to the left, uh, Peter Prossen. He was a colonel, he's an excellent flyer, maybe a little bit uh, too confident in, in his flying ability. And he brought along a, as a co-pilot a Major Nicholson from my area of the woods, from Massachusetts. And he invited along some of the people who worked for him uh, in this logistical unit. And he invited his secretary, the beautiful Margaret Hastings, a whack. And she brought along her best friend, Laura Besley, and two friends were supposed to go, but one had to uh, put a, together an order of planes for MacArthur, so only one of these two women could go. And similar, uh, another pair of best friends, one took the other's place because he didn't want to fly with Colonel Prossen because he had denied him a promotion. And then uh, in the far right, Ken Decker, uh, a sergeant from the Northwest, and a pair of inseparable twins. They were known, in fact, as the inseparables. 
John and Robert McCullum, uh, two lieutenants from the Midwest. And so on this day, they were all going to get aboard this plane, the Gremlin Special. Uh, if you know, gremlins are these mythical beasts that supposedly wreck airplanes. Now, little word to the wise, if you get on a plane called the Gremlin Special, you know, <laughs> take the next flight. <laughs> it's really not that complicated. Um, but they all got aboard. It was a, uh, a C-47. And this is what they all wanted. Colonel uh, Ray Ellsmore was, 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 a, you know, was a little bit of a cowboy, and he, he had fun with these things. And so he made a Shangri-La Society. It's a fictional organization for a fictional valley in, in some ways. And everyone who flew over was given one of these certificates. And he would sign it, and it was, it was a membership. And it was something to go back, to bring back home. Uh, what did you do in the war? Grandpa or grandma or, or mom or dad. So they got on their C-47. It would have looked a lot like this, although the one they were in was uh, camouflage painted. And they flew in. It's about an hour and a half flight. It was supposed to be a three-hour tour. And, um, <laughs> what could go wrong on a three-hour tour? And uh, so they flew in. They would have seen scenes like this. And then they came to the edge of the valley. And in fact, you, before you go into the main valley of Shangri-La, there's a little side valley you have to go through. There's a pass. And today it's, in fact, known as the Pass Valley, a mountain pass. And they saw an empty village that would have looked almost identical to this one, which is, this is a 1945 photograph. And Margaret Hastings and some of the other people uh, aboard wanted to see the, the natives they had heard so much about, and the village seemed empty. So at this moment, a series of terrible tragedies take, takes place, really, uh, is the only way to put it. Colonel Prossing is outside the cockpit. He is socializing. And Colonel and Major Nicholson decides to turn the plane. And those of you who are pilots know that the first rule of flying in mountain flying is being sure, of course, you, you, you have enough distance before you, you think about turning. He did not. The Gremlin Special crashed into the mountain on the way in to Shangri-La. These are actual pictures of the aftermath. Twenty-one of the twenty-four people aboard were killed. Uh, Eighteen actually killed immediately, and three uh, lived shortly after. The first survivor was John McCullum. He was incredibly unhurt, uh, sort of miraculously. But when he and his twin brother got aboard, they were separated. It was very unusual for them. They were the last two to board. John McCullum sat near the tail section, and his brother couldn't find a seat next to him. They had expected to see Shangri-La out the same window, as they had done everything together their entire lives. But uh, Robert McCullum could only find a seat near the cockpit. And so when John McCullum emerged in the jungle, he had suffered uh, an existential loss. Uh, and he was changed forever by it. He lost his twin brother. The second survivor was Ken Decker, the man I showed you at the far right. Uh, he suffered a terrible head wound. As long as he lived, he would never remember anything of the flight, would never remember how he emerged in the jungle. Uh, 
He was also burned terribly on his back and buttocks and legs. And the third survivor was Margaret Hastings, this 100-pound secretary from upstate New York uh, who had joined the Women's Army Corps to test herself, to see if she had the medal that she thought she did. And so what she would be facing here would be the test of her life. She was also burned badly, and uh, she used to have long hair, but some of it was singed, and some, when they were caught in the jungle, she asked John McCullum to give her a, uh, a jungle cut, as she called it. And the question, of course, the main question facing them initially was, what would happen when they faced these people they thought they would see only from the air, the people they had seen, uh, they had told and heard so many stories about? And so that becomes the crux of what happens after the crash. Now, in the meantime, the U.S. Army, of course, realizes that uh, its plane, the Gremlin Special, has not returned in its three-hour allotted time. And so they start making plans, figuring out if we can send searchers, if we can find them somehow, uh, what would we do? Because we can't land in the jungle, we don't think, or in this valley. And so it just so happened, at this moment, stationed in Hollandia was a very unusual group of men. Uh, they were led by, um, I'm proud to call him my friend, uh, Earl Walter, the tall fella in the second row. Uh, he was a young captain intent on proving himself to his father, who was uh, something of a legendary colonel fighting with the guerrillas in, um, in the Philippines in jungle warfare. And Earl had taken on the task of training Filipino-Americans uh, from the 1st Recon Battalion to be parachutists and paratroopers and for behind enemy lines missions. And they were standing outside here, the Club Bahala Na, which is from the Tagalog dialect of the Philippines, it means come what may. They were up for anything. And they had all uh, volunteered after the Bataan Death March. I was happy to hear that you, your last year's uh, lecture was about the Bataan Death March. They felt as though both of their homelands had been attacked. And so they were especially eager to fight uh, the Japanese and to fight for um, uh, the Allies. And so, they volunteered. They said, yes, we will go, whatever you need, we will go in and save these people or rescue these people. And Earl said to them, well, this is what I've been told. If we volunteer, we have to accept certain things. There are approximately 100,000 of these Stone Age cannibals living in this valley and around this valley. So we will be outnumbered approximately 10,000 to one. It is the worst jump zone I have ever seen. The jump zone itself is probably suicide. And we have no idea how we're getting out if we get in. So who's with me? <laughs> and uh, as Earl tells it, and Earl is 90 years old now, uh, turned 90 in uh, last May. He'll be 91 this May. Um, he says, and he swears to it, every man in that picture said, and took a step forward. And he picked the 10 men he thought were most appropriate for the trip, two of whom were medics, a few who were just great soldiers, a couple who were particularly strong and able, and they agreed, we're going to parachute in to save these survivors if we can find them. And there's Earl 
talking on his cell phone. Um, and, and clearly they should have made a movie and Earl could have starred in it. Uh, he was, he was a six foot four, uh, strapping, uh, incredible guy. And still is. Well, as they're getting ready to drop Earl and his men in, they're, they're thinking, well, once we get them in, how could we get them out? And wh what are our options here? So they thought about helicopters uh, or whirlybirds. And uh, at the time, uh, they did not have the lift to get over the mountains. The thin air of the mountains would have brought them down. So they ruled out helicopters as a way to rescue these people. They thought about a PT boat. There are rivers that crisscross um, New Guinea. And so, the, the, the one that, that JFK piloted, but there was no navigable river uh, close enough to make it worthwhile, so they ruled that out. They thought about a Navy blimp, and then they realized some of the same forces, because in addition to not having enough room to turn, uh, this area is beset by terrible winds and updrafts and downdrafts, and they, some of the same dra drafts that probably contributed to the Gremlin special crash would have certainly turned this into a mini Hindenburg. They thought about little spotter planes, these little planes that could take one or perhaps at most two people at a time, but they only had a range of about an hour and a half, so they would have had to drop an enormous cache of fuel, of gasoline, into the valley, and also some of the same forces might have affected these tiny planes, so they ruled that out. They thought about marching these people through 150 miles either way, either to the north coast or to the south coast, of some of the worst jungles on the planet, most awful uh, you know, environment you can imagine, compounded by the fact that there were still an unknown number, certainly in the thousands, of hiding Japanese troops who after uh, MacArthur took the, there's no way to really ca you know, capture New Guinea. You can sort of hold the coast but you can't hold the whole island. So a certain number of unknown uh, Japanese were hiding one way, and in the other way, if they had gone south, they would have gone through what, they, what was known to be headhunter territory. And so uh, I asked Earl, I said, when they were talking about this, if they, asked, if they gave you a choice, would you go north through the Japanese or south through the headhunters, which way would you have gone? And he said, that's easy, uh, through the Japanese. I said, really, why? He said, well, they didn't have home field advantage. <laughs> so, so that became his plan. That was his out plan. But the Army came up with something even crazier. That is a Waco glider, a CG-4A glider. These were giant cargo gliders that were used, and I see some people nodding who knew about these things, which were incredible. These giant cargo gliders that were used more often in Europe, but also a little bit in the, in the, in the Far East, in the, in the Pacific Theater. And they were towed in on the, you can sort of see the, uh, the string to the, to, the, to the nose, to the tow rope to its nose, and they could be dropped anywhere. And then they could be, if you were really just crazy enough, snatched back up into the air by passing planes. So the rescue plan <laughs> becomes, we're going to drop these Waco gliders into this valley of Shangri-La. We're going to set up what are essentially the equivalent of football goalposts. And across the football goalpost, we're going to string a giant rubber band. 
And clearly this is wily coyote time, right? <laughs> and so, and a, from there, from that rubber band, we're going to attach it, the other piece of the, this giant nylon, to the nose. And then we're going to have these C-47s and C-46s sweep into this valley 15 feet off the ground with hooks hanging off their bellies. And they're going to snatch that rubber band off the top of the goalpost, keep going, pull these gliders from a dead stop each time. They'd have to do it three times because they could only take about five people at a time. Now they had all these, these paratroopers in there as well. And pull it up and over the mountains and back to Hollandia. Well, Earl was not thrilled with this idea. <laughs> uh, he knew, not everyone knew this, but he knew that the gliders in World War II had acquired a nickname, an unfortunate nickname, if you ask me. They were called the Flying Coffin. <laughs> and again, just if you're taking notes, like Gremlin Special, if the plane you're in is called the Flying Coffin, don't take it. Um, but that becomes the Army's rescue plan. Now, if this wasn't crazy enough, in the midst of this, in drops a filmmaker. He hears, and I, I, I'm not good enough to make this stuff up. I'm not, you know. Um, uh, Alexander Kahn is working for the Netherlands government in exile, the Dutch government in exile, as a propagandist, as a, to sort of keep the interests of the Dutch people before the world. And so he's been hired on as a filmmaker. In fact, what he was was a Hollywood actor washout. He had been a drinking buddy of Humphrey Bogart's, and uh, mostly on the drinking side. And one day he decided to uh, turn into a jewel thief. And he was the worst jewel thief in history. He was caught in about three hours and drummed out of Hollywood, and he washes up in the Far East as a filmmaker. And he parachutes into the valley uh, never parachuted before. He drank a bottle of Boodle's gin beforehand for courage. And he swung, and Earl describes it as he swung like a metronome, and the bottom uh, just completely passed out, lands flat on his back, pops up, sees Margaret Hastings, and declares her the most beautiful survivor of the war. His film was largely lost to history. Fortunately, uh, as many of you know, the, the National Archives is incredible and it is just amazing what you can find there. This is Alex Kahn narrating. High in the mountains of Dutch New Guinea beneath these clouds, an American army plane crashed some time ago. There are three survivors from the 24 passengers and crew. These three and the rescuing paratroopers are now walking over those razorbacks towards the mystical valley we call Shangri-La. We're flying over the route of their march. And when we get to the valley, I'm going to parachute in to photograph this rescue. Now we're coming in over Shangri-La. In this valley, the American Air Force is going to attempt the rescue of these people by pickup glider. There's one of the villages. There are dozens of them scattered over the length of this beautiful valley, never before seen by white men. Here we go. Now we're down in the mountains with them. 
This is the country they climbed up and down for 40 tough miles. In three and a half days, they walked down from the crash at 11,000 feet out of these never, never mountains. Corporal Margaret Hastings, Lieutenant McCollum, and Sergeant Decker, and the paratroopers led by Captain Walters. There's Maggie. She looks a little tired, but she's still walking in spite of the leg burns. And McCollum and Johnny come lately. One last Razorback before the base camp. And these are the Stone Age men we found in this valley. You saw that some of the uh, tribespeople seemed to be quite friendly, and they were, and, and quite helpful, but not all were. And the man in the center of this image, uh, these images were taken by Earl Walter and shared with me very, very graciously of him, uh, was the leader of uh, a tribal unit that he had the ability to call 5,000 warriors to warfare at any given time. His name was Yali Logo. He was easily identified by his curved gourd, which he always wore a curved gourd, I was told, uh, which I think he thought made him look taller, perhaps. Um, uh, that's, that's not in the book, because I couldn't document it. Uh, it's, it's, it's nonfiction. So. Um, but he began plotting against the outsiders. He did not like the fact that Earl Walter and John McCollum and, and, uh, and Ken Decker and, and the, the, the Filipino-American paratroopers were behaving as big men. They were crossing tribal lines. They, of course, didn't know. But all of these things that had been established over time immemorial were suddenly up for grabs. And Yalilago began plotting to kill the outsiders before, you know, he, of course, did not know about the glider plan. But the question becomes, of course, what will happen? And that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the valley today. This is uh, the, the, the valley known as Shangri-La. Today is known as the Ballium Valley of uh, New Guinea. Uh, it is still, as you can see, quite beautiful. That is still the mountain pass that the pl any plane coming in or out uh, goes through to get into the Ballium Valley. There is now. Uh, a, a very small airport in the one community of any size called Wamana. And uh, that's where I went to, to report this story. Because um, as Paul mentioned, I'm a journalism professor at Boston University. And one of the first rules is, of course, there is more than one side of the story. So I knew from a diary that Margaret Hastings had kept and a journal that, that uh, Earl had kept and interviews with other people. I knew the American side of the story, about what they thought and what they experienced. But it wouldn't be full, it wouldn't be complete without finding out, if I could, from the people of the valley, what they thought when these strangers dropped in. So with help from Earl's photographs and with the help of an amazing translator, one of about 12 people on the planet who speaks the native language of Dani and also English, uh, I went there and interviewed old men and women who, of course, knew the story. I mean, if, uh, 
you know, if, if the Martians landed tomorrow in the center of Richmond, you would remember it 70 years later. And that was the equivalent of what had happened to these people. And so one after another, some of, some of whom have, uh, the younger people have adopted more westernized dress, but some of the older people still wear the traditional gourd um, and, uh, uh, and shell outfits. Um, they told me about these people, and they described what had happened from their perspective. And one after another had stories to tell and could identify the people, and they still remembered the name of, uh, of Walters and McCullum, and they had, it, it had, they had sort of converted them into uh, their language. McCullum's become, becomes uh, Miakale, for instance. Um, and one after another, these interviews take place. And at the far end of the valley, I came upon uh, this incredible, it's the most remote, I've been around the world, um, it's the most remote place I've ever been on the planet. Uh, and this particularly ex uh, uh, isolated village, at the very far end of it, is a very old man. They said, you really should talk to him. And uh, his name is Helen Ma Wandik. And so we went there, and I met Helen Ma Wandik. And he told me the story, and he became my best local source. Uh, he was the son of the first tribesman, Wimayok Wandik, who greeted the survivors, who decided whether or not they would be killed immediately or not. And he described this in unbelievable detail, in details he could not have known uh, were he not there. Things that I had heard from the other side about the log they crossed and about all these things. And so you, you know if you do what I do, um, you know when you're getting the real first-person account. And so there. Uh, I am with some, you know, uh, it's so funny how the, the Western world, you see the, 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 young, the young woman um, to my right, Nande Mina, uh, is wearing a Dolce & Gabbana t-shirt. <laughs> I just love that somehow um, it, it is the most remote place. And then, pardon me, he urged me to go see his cousin, Yungunkwe Wandik. Uh, Wandik is a, a, tr uh, a clan name. And uh, we went, so we went to another very remote village, uh, and it was starting to get dark, and I uh, didn't necessarily want to sleep there <laughs> that night. Um, but Yungunkwe would not speak to us for over an hour. She was very angry. And uh, I, I tried everything. I fed lines to my translator, who you'll see in a minute, Buzz Maxi, and Buzz, ask her this, ask that, nothing. And then as we finally said, it's, it's time to go, it's getting dark. And uh, she starts screaming her story to the sky. She just, she was so angry. And she described when she saw the plane coming into the valley, coming into the past valley, which is where her, her childhood village was, she saw, and uh, she was afraid, and she ran. But she had left outside her, um, her tent, her, excuse me, her hut, um, a pig, uh, a pig that she had just been given. And when the, the, one of these supply planes came later and dropped cargo without parachutes, you see where the story's going. It destroyed her pig. It demolished her pig. And uh, it, was, it was tragic. It was, um, I mean, there's nothing more valuable to a 12-year-old Donnie girl uh, than her first pig. And so she was still mad, 
at the Americans and had not had many opportunities to express that anger <laughs> until I showed up. And, um, and so she yelled at me for until it got dark. And, um, uh, but she did tell me the whole story of what the experience was like. And uh, uh, one of the rules of, of um, the ethical rules of journalism is we do not pay for interviews. Uh, it changes the dynamic and so uh, we don't. But after, I just, I did feel obligated. Uh, she was not asking for money, but I did say to Buzz, you gotta tell me, how much is a pig? <laughs> and, and so I, I approached her with uh, the Indonesian currency that they, they use. This is now part of Indonesia, this part of the island, um, on behalf of a grateful nation. <laughs> and I, I paid her for the pig. So I, I hope I made amends. And then with the help of Thomas Wandik, uh, we decided to try to climb the mountain where the Gremlin Special crashed to see what we'd find. And uh, I had an idea, but I wanted to see it for myself. And there's, there's Buzz, uh, who I could never have done this without. He's the son of American missionaries who in the 1950s were some of the first, after this, this story became known uh, back in the 40s, although it disappeared quickly, but his parents uh, were missionaries and they heard about this place where there were tens of thousands of people um, who had never heard of the Gospels. And so uh, they, they raised Buzz there. And although he went to, the, um, went to college here in the States, he has moved back there and he's an aid worker there uh, with his wife and, and two beautiful sons, uh, raising them there and working to help these people today. And we got to the top of the mountain and incredibly, Pieces of the Gremlin Special are still exactly where they had landed 65 years earlier. And this was really, um, for me, more emotional than I had anticipated. I had spent years thinking about these people. I knew um, I could name all 24 people uh, who were on that plane. I could tell you their hometowns. I could tell you, in many cases, uh, in details of their lives. Um, and I just had this, uh, there's a moment where uh, we picked up a piece of the plane and it was clearly from the fuselage and, and a, um, uh, a window cut out. And I realized some, one of the people who I had felt I had come to know, the last thing they may have done may have been looked out through that same window. Um, and it became even more uh, emotionally wrenching when we were digging through the mud and we found small uh, pieces of, of human remains. And we, uh, we reburied, that's, those are Thomas's hands holding that, that piece of bone. Uh, we reburied it and marked it. And um, uh, JPAC and DPMO, the, the two uh, American agencies, the US military agencies that are in charge of joint POW MIA command, um, have now marked this as a place to go back to. And so we hope that they will. And I, I hope if that happens and when that happens, uh, I will join them to show them where we put uh, what we found. And then uh, to give you a sense of the valley, that's Buzz, we, the, the tail section of the plane has now slid down several hundred feet. And so um, we have to climb down there uh, to get there. Uh, and the valley has started to, you can see little pieces of the plane, and, um, but it started to reclaim that area. And there's Indiana Schwartz and the Temple Bethel. Um, <laughs> It's a movie never coming to you. Um, and then, of course, if you do the first slide with the spinning globe, um, you have to, by law, do the second uh, slide. 
And so then, and only then, when I, when I had made this trip, I did feel finally ready to tell the story of what happened. And uh, it is a story of war, but it is, it's a story also of, of uh, a clash of cultures, and it's also a, a clash of values. And uh, it's a story of some really, truly remarkable people who were in the war, who were not fighting uh, the enemy, but they were fighting for their own survival. And I think there were lessons to be learned from that. And I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. I'm more than happy uh, to answer questions if anyone has a, a question. I know there, there are um, microphones that will be passed so everyone can hear them as well. Oh, great. Yes, sir. Were the tribes people endo-cannibals or exo-cannibals? Pardon me? Were they endo-cannibals or exo-cannibals? Wow. I do not know the distinction between those two. Um, endo-cannibals are people who eat members of their own tribe oh. after death. Exo-cannibals eat other people. They were exo-cannibals then. And uh, I, <laughs> I talked to uh, Helen Ma quite about, a lot about this because I wanted to know firsthand. And um, firsthand is, is a, uh, a phrase I use advisedly because Helen Ma explained that uh, they would only eat the hands and arms of their enemies. And uh, he looked down as sort of the moral relativism of cannibals, I guess. Uh, he looked down on their enemies who would eat the entire bodies, those barbarians, as, as he put it. And uh, so I, I quickly tucked my hands in my pockets and <laughs> continued the interview. Um, and he, uh, but he explained it was, it was always a ritualistic um, uh, eating of the enemy after the, their warfare is what animated their lives, and the cannibalism was very much a part of it. Uh, there was no shortage of food. There was no need for more land. Uh, they weren't trying to convert anyone to a different uh, set of political beliefs. Warfare, an eye for an eye ad infinitum, animated their culture and gave them a reason to continue to have the bonds that they did. And part of it became the, uh, the eating of parts of the bodies of their enemies. Thank you. Yes, sir. Did the uh, snatching up of the uh, glider by an aircraft, uh, was that carried out successfully, or were there complications involved there? <laughs> who, who I know you're telling me to read the book. You have to read the book. I, is my mother in the audience? I'm sorry. No. Um, uh, well. <laughs> ah, I, I won't tell, but um, but it's available in the library near you. Uh, two questions. Yes. Oh, sorry. How did the army know that there were survivors? And how long did it take before they could mount the rescue ex expedition? It's an excellent question. Uh, uh, they were spotted days after. What happened was, and, and some of this, and, and obviously I glossed over some things because you'll find out if, if you do look at the book, but um, John McCullum looked down, the, 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 he realized that if they stayed where they were under this canopy, this incredibly thick um, canopy of, of, of uh, fauna around them, they would never be seen. He climbed a tree and looked, and he saw that several miles down further on the mountain, there was a, a clearing. So he led them to this clearing. 
and, and that journey is a big part of the book. And he brought with him a, uh, a tarp, really it was a, a, an un, uh, uninflated life raft, and it was yellow. And when he spread it out, the search planes that were flying overhead in this sea of green saw this flash of yellow. And that's how they knew they were there. And at first they, of course, didn't know how many survived, but then they were able to drop them uh, a, a sort of an oversized walkie-talkie, and that's how they knew. And then uh, the whole planning beyond that took another seven weeks before, um, because uh, in part because uh, Margaret and, and Ken Decker especially were terribly injured. And so they could not be moved from the, uh, the jungle campsite down to the valley where they were going to try this uh, glider pickup for a number of weeks. So they were healing there uh, for a while. What, what happened to the uh, three survivors? <laughs> Same problem. Um, uh, um, I don't want to give it all away, but I will say that I, I was very, very happy to get the accounts that they left behind. I don't know if that is. Yes. Would you care to expand on the family life of the cannibals and what was the average uh, lifespan and what did they die of and what was their diet? And they, I'm sorry, in the last question? What was their diet? Their diet. Uh, I'll take them in reverse order. Uh, their diet was largely sweet potatoes that they grew and pigs. Uh, that was almost the entirety of their diet. Uh, they. They, they were quite healthy if they were not being killed off in their own warfare. They lived quite uh, long lives. Uh, Yali Lago, uh, especially after the warfare ended, uh, he lived certainly into his 60s, maybe into his 70s. Uh, their health was quite good. This was a, um, a prospering society. Uh, their family units were interesting. Uh, the, the, because of the number of men who were killed in war, there were women available for uh, multiple, multiple, multiple marriages. There, were, there was polygamy practiced. Um, but after a woman would um, give birth, she would abstain uh, from sexual relations for years afterward. And it, it sort of had the added effect of, um, of keeping the population from, from uh, overwhelming their resources. Uh, and so, uh, there's, there's a section in the book, I really enjoyed the anthropological side of this, and uh, some very, very good anthropology has been done about these people. Some of you may even have seen, a, there's a film um, uh, made in the early 1960s called Dead Birds by Robert Gardner. Uh, he was one of the last people, he went in with Michael Rockefeller, in fact, uh, to New Guinea, and it's, it's a film about these people at one of the last moments when they were truly um, original and, and, or aboriginal. Yes. The natives thought we were cannibals. It seems we gave them canned goods and we give them a can of tomatoes and on the can there was a picture of a tomato and when they opened it up there was a tomato. <laughs> and the same thing with the other vegetables. Is that, I, I, I then, never heard that story. And then we gave them a can of Gerber's baby food. Oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> I am so going to steal that. I am, I am, I, I, if you give me your name later, I will credit you, but I am so going to steal that. 
somebody Would you elaborate on how you first discovered the tale? Yes, how I first discovered it. Um, uh, one of the most fortunate uh, pieces of good luck in my life. I was looking into another World War II story that I thought would be my next book, and so I was reading newspaper archives. And uh, it was April 1945, then May 1945, and into June 45, and I came across a headline in the Chicago Tribune that read, Glider rescue in Shangri-La delayed by clouds. And I did not have to be very bright at that moment to know that why don't we know this? Why is this a story that has been lost to history? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, there are other far greater World War II scholars than I, but I, I thought Spielberg owned 41 to 45 inclusive. <laughs> I, I mean, why wasn't there uh, you know, a film. And so from there, uh, I just, you know, I, I dropped the other project and, and started doing what reporters we call collecting string to see if there was enough, if there was the critical mass of information and human sources and other uh, available information to turn this into not just a magazine piece. I knew I could get a magazine piece for Smithsonian or for, you know, for someone, but I really hoped it would be a book. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I just want to know, when you interviewed the natives, what, what was the answer as to why they decided not to eat these people? Uh, that's a great question. I will tell you that. They had a, um, a prophecy in their culture called the Uluayak prophecy that told of light-skinned ghosts who would come down a rope or a vine from the sky. And they thought it was the fulfillment of this prophecy. And they thought they were otherworldly creatures. They had never seen white people before. There was one biologist, an American biologist, who had come through one part of the valley. But for the people who were involved there, they had never seen them. So they thought it would be, um, it would be violative. It would be viola a violation of the Uluayak legend. And so that saved them. Without the, and that was one of my questions above all, because it was certainly a question that Earl or the survivors could never answer. They didn't know. Thank you so much.